dude, did, I don't know. You probably didn't see this, but the they they pitched. Uh, they pitched uh quickly rj and five first for carl anthony towns what and five first and jason conception was like i think you got to do it on the low post you sure this wasn't bill simmons this is hot hand theory uh, this is a podcast where we talk about the NBA with a focus on the New York Knicks and break things down from an analytical perspective. I'm your co-host, XJ. He is my brilliant co-host, Jeff. Jeff, we've been waiting a while to do this. What What's going on, my guy? I'm just, I'm honestly so hyped and ready to go. Like you said, I mean, we've been talking about this since, I don't know, I, I probably sent you a DM like early in 2023, maybe in late 2022. Um and then we've just been tossing ideas around all summer. Just super excited to get going. Yeah, this is this is awesome. For sure. No, I feel the same way. I like I couldn't wait to do this. Um, we're gonna talk a lot of data, but it's gonna be in a very accessible and like fun way from from two basketball junkies. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited to go. Um, but I, I really want to just kind of jump right in. I don't want to do too much preamble. We have a lot to talk about. Um, and I'm doing great, better than the Knicks preseason defense, uh, at least, and which we'll get into it a little bit. But basically on this episode, uh, we're, we've talked about we're going to really do an offseason preseason recap, but it should be like pretty quick. Um, we don't want to linger too much. We want to look forward, not too much in the past. Um, and speaking of looking forward, we're going to do a full season preview and then a preview and analysis of the first week of games. I can't believe it. We're up to real NBA games starting <laughs> um, by the time people are listening to this starting tomorrow. Um, so that's great. I'm really looking forward to it. Why don't we start first, like we mentioned, with the offseason preseason recap? Um, let's just tie a bow on the Knicks offseason and preseason. Like I said, we don't have to spend too much time on this, but I do want us to get out kind of a summary of our thoughts on everything that's happened before the season and um, before the the start of the new season tomorrow. And, you know, like it's been discussed as at length, the Knicks made two primary moves this offseason, um, trading Obi Toppin to Indiana and the signing of Dante DiVincenzo to a four-year deal. So are there any like insights or specific takeaways that you want to highlight from either of those or any other moves? Yeah, I think that's, the story is the Knicks replaced Obi Toppin with Dante DiVincenzo. And I think that it was a really good move by the Knicks that um, some people might say, see that, hear that and think, Oh, he's, he's down on Obi Toppin. He doesn't think Obi Toppin's good. No, that couldn't be further from the truth. I, I think Obi Toppin's a good player, a high impact player. I think he, especially his second year, he was a high impact per minute player. I just don't think the opportunity was ever going to be there in New York. I think that's become abundantly clear. You know, we had people talking about over 25 minutes a game before year three. And it's just, that was never going to happen under Tom Thibodeau unless an injury happened. Um, and honestly with Josh Hart, even if an injury did happen, like we saw it in the playoffs, even when Obi played well in the games that Randall didn't play, he eventually was just like, all right, Josh Hart, like I trust you more. And the truth of the matter is, is that what Obi did well didn't jibe uh, with, <laughs> I just can 
combine jive and jive and vibe uh didn't vibe oh, both of those things <laughs> yes or mesh with what tom thibodeau likes um that's okay that doesn't have to mean that bobby Toppin's a bad player it just means he was a poor fit dante divincenzo on the other hand is the opposite and one thing it does that i think has gone underrated is it's clear that tom thibodeau is going to like him but it also kind of forces Tom Thibodeau's hand and, and pushes him outside the box because unless Thibodeau is going to go to a 10 man rotation and play Jericho Sims at power forward from day one, which I don't think he's going to do. He is now forced to run his nine man rotation with Josh Hart and RJ Barrett as the sole wings on the court when, when the bench unit's out there. So the Knicks front office kind of identified um, a way to diversify the types of lineups that the Knicks play. And Tom Thibodeau doesn't really have a say in it. Like either he's going to play, he's going to play these nine guys. So like, they're kind of just like, yeah, these are your guys get on board or don't. And I love that move for that reason. Yeah. I mean, I, I absolutely agree with your, your OB take. I mean, this has been kind of beaten to death at this point. So I don't want to add too much to it. I think Obi's an impact player. And I think we're going to see that this year. Um, despite some of his his shortcomings that he certainly does have. But like you mentioned, DiVincenzo is a much better fit, much better fit for what Tibbs wants to do, a much better fit for what the Knicks want to do. Um, and kind of my thoughts really on the offseason blend into the preseason because in the preseason, I think we've seen the full complement of what DiVincenzo brings. I mean, both his strengths and his weaknesses. And, and to be clear, there are far more strengths for DiVincenzo than weaknesses. Um, I do think he can be a bit loose, uh, which leads to like turnovers on bad passes or, or even like gambles defensively. And I don't know if people realized this before we got, before we signed him, but he's not a good finisher around the rim. Um, like he, he doesn't have this like beautiful touch, you know, that some guys have that, you know, they get to the rim and they have this feathery touch, like a lot of his shots kind of bounce hard off the rim and um, he can kind of like slip up. Like, I don't want to say like clumsy because he's clearly not clumsy. He's an elite like hand-eye coordination, like athletic person in the world. But um, it seems that way a little bit. But he's going to fight super hard on defense. He's going to create turnovers. He's going to be able to play above his size. He's going to box out and fight for rebounds. He's going to hit threes consistently. And obviously, that's a huge thing that the Knicks needed. I love your point about the fact that kind of Tibbs's hand is forced a little bit to play some like interesting lineups and rotations. And I love that because it's just, I think Tibbs can be very creative and it's like, you kind of just have to force him to be a little bit at sometimes. And I think that that's, we're going to see that this year. We're going to see some cool lineups. I believe less, less of just kind of the same or, or even like pseudo hockey rotations. We're going to see some like really interesting combinations, I believe. And it's because he has like really versatile guys like DiVincenzo who can play above his size, Grimes who can play above his size, Hart who can play above his size. So I think having versatile guys like that who are going to be able to hold their own defensively is going to let Tibbs like not be too locked in into saying like, I need these guys on the court at all times because his worry is going to be on the defensive end. And and we'll talk about the defense because I have some worries about the defensive end too. But um, but I just I I I love the DiVincenzo addition. He's gonna have continuity with guys like Brunson and Hart, obviously, which I do believe is a real thing. I don't think that doesn't matter. 
Um, so yeah, that that's I, I guess that's where we're at. Just to just to push us over to 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 kind of moving towards the preseason. Um, I think that the concern coming out of the final preseason game and just preseason, like there's no real concerns, but the most recent preseason game, which was, was kind of a dress rehearsal. And I think Tibbs intimated as such, uh, was, was the defense. And, you know, to me, I'm not worried about like more worried about the Knicks defense than I already was. Um, I actually thought it was pretty sharp early in the game and they were like, good on their assignments and the you know they 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 were locked in kind of getting over screens a lot of them were in the right position off ball they were chasing shooters uh you know closing out to shooters in in a controlled fashion so i thought we saw some good things and you know the wizards <laughs> they made some tough shots like it was like a lot of contested middies like pool just doing some unique offensive things that he is absolutely capable of doing at times and we saw some mistakes by like grimes defending pool and um, so I, I think that there were some good things and bad things, but I, I, again, preseason, we wouldn't take too much away from it. And I do think they were locked in early and we're just like, yeah, all right, we did enough. We can kind of like, <laughs> we can kind of take a break now and not have to play at this level of intensity. So yeah, I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about the preseason games and, and, and particularly the defense, or if there's anything else that you've seen in the preseason that you think may carry over to the regular season. So regarding the defense, um, to bring it back to DiVincenzo for a second, one one of the other reasons that I like the DiVincenzo acquisition is he creates more live ball turnovers than anybody else in the Knicks rotation. Um, And one thing that I think we saw in the preseason was Thibodeau let him remain himself and allow him to sort of gamble uh, strategically within the scheme. And especially for an offense that can sometimes struggle live ball turnovers and getting out in transition are huge. Um, And then also he plays with RJ Barrett and getting out in transition is huge for RJ. Like that's a, that's going to be a huge part of his effectiveness. You see RJ kind of getting, getting more active on the defensive glass. And I actually believe it's because aside from him and quickly, nobody else really wants to push the ball like uh, off of misses if you, if you see Mitch, if you see Randall, that might be a little harsh on Randall because I actually think Randall has done a good job of pushing the ball off rebounds as well. Not actually not as a dribbler. Um, like he's found RJ at half court off of rebounds multiple times this preseason. And that's stuff you really like to see. But for the most part, I would argue we're more of a, we're just a slower team. I think Tibbs prefers it that way. I don't think he likes the volatility of um, transition. I remember against Boston last season, there was a play when Hartenstein got a rebound and tried to make like a Kevin Love outlet to across half court and uh, Marcus Smart picked it off and the Celtics scored. And Tibbs was like, are you fucking kidding me? Like he just screamed it. And I was like, oh man, he hates that. Like he just, he just doesn't like that. Um, So yeah, I think that creating turnovers and creating pace is going to be valuable and I think DiVincenzo brings that. I also wanted to comment on what you talked about with him around the rim. Um, a good thing about DiVincenzo is that he seems to be very self-aware. So if you look at his shot chart last year, he only took 52 shots in between 5 and 19 feet all season long. That's awesome. Like, even though he's not great from that area, he's basically saying, like, I don't need to be great from that area. He knows his role. And so, yes, do you, is the, are there going to be individual possessions where you're like, dude, what are you doing? Like, yes. But I think on the whole, playing next to Quickly and Grimes, he's going to be a plus. Um, 
you mentioned his rebounding. He's going to be huge on the defensive glass. And that matters because Thibodeau, we've seen it now for three seasons. He has his biases. And if something confirms the bias that he has, he will, he is not going to wait around to move off it. And if this bench lineup with Hart and RJ and DiVincenzo and quickly all on the court together, if they struggle on the defensive glass, that's going to be his, that's going to be his first move. If the Knicks struggle is to get more size into that lineup. Um, whether that's good or not long-term, we can debate it. I don't think that would be good long-term, but that's what Thibodeau's bias is going to be towards. So DiVincenzo being good on the defensive glass is going to help. When you say get more size in, are you referring to Jericho Sims or what are you thinking that would look like? So best case scenario to me would be he fudges up the rotations and RJ takes the Randall spot and Randall takes the RJ spot. And what I mean by that is right now, basically Brunson and Randall are playing most of the first quarter together. And then they sit and eventually after all the substitutions are made, the bench unit is quickly uh, DiVincenzo, Hart, RJ, Hartenstein, or I assume that's what it's going to be. Right. He'll just flip RJ and Randall and the bench unit will become the same five, except for our, except for Randall's with the I bench. See. Yeah. Um, yeah. I would hope to me, that's best case scenario. Worst case scenario is he says, okay, we're going to a 10 man rotation and having a more traditional power forward. Whether, and yes, I, I, I firmly believe that Jericho Sims is option one. I don't think that would be the wisest decision. Um, but yeah, Regarding the defense, I actually didn't see too much film in the preseason that was like damning, or at least as you yeah. alluded to, any more damning than what we saw last season when they were 19th across the whole season. Like I rewatched that Wizards game twice, and I just kept being like, "How did these shots keep going?" Like you know, like they were and, just and making like in crazy shots, especially even you, even Muscala, even Muscala, Avdia too. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're gonna get into this when we talk about the Celtics game. I would argue the Knicks' biggest single weakness defensively is defending stretch fives. And so I tweeted out, I was out with my parents, and I tweeted out, like, I was like, is this Muscala? Is Muscala hitting five straight threes, like, as ridiculous as it seems? <laughs> because I could just see the Knicks defending it poorly and just leaving him open. Like, a couple of those Porzingis threes were just wide open because the Knicks just didn't hedge properly. But Muscala hit a couple of ones where I was like, oh, that defense was fine. Like, that was just... They, okay, whatever. You live with Mike Muscala hitting that shot, and I'm sure Tibbs won't be overreacting. The defense does need to be better ne the next season. I'm going to turn this over to you because I know your thoughts are strong, or I think your th thoughts are strong here. I would be very surprised if the Knicks have a top three offense again. And if they're going to do what us Knicks fans, let's be clear, us Knicks fans think, you know, this is a 50 plus win team. The market does not, and maybe that's it. Like maybe, like I was, I was looking for reasons as we, you know, start to delve into the season as a whole and what we expect from the season as a whole. Oh, with Josh Hart, they wanted a 55 win pace, and they had this elite net rating, and now all their young players are a year older. We're going to see improvement. How does this team not win 50 wins? They're over unders 45 and a half. The market yeah. does not like the Nick. The, the market does not like the Knicks as much as we do, and as much as it may suck, it, we should look for reasons why that may be true. And I think reason number one is, oh, this is the 19th best defense. The same guys who struggled on defense last season are going to play the majority of minutes again. 
And then we can expect regression from the offense because the league is going to catch up quick because that's what happens in the NBA. If you're looking for reasons why the Knicks over under is 45 and a half, that might be it. Um, Biasly, I think over 45 and a half is a great bet, but I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's a perfect transition, obviously, from the preseason into the the full season. So we can go straight into our full season preview. And um, at least for me, I think I have the Knicks going like 52 and 30. Um, I think that they're going to be plus 50 win team. Uh, I don't think they might get to like the 55 win mark. I think to win 55 games, you have to be like pretty dominant. <laughs> and I don't, I don't think they're quite there yet. Uh, and what I mean by you have to be pretty dominant is that there's like such a mark, a small margin for error in basketball and in that, in the NBA. And in order to like win enough games that are close or tight, um, or always win the games that you're supposed to, you have to be like consistently dominant almost every night. And that's why no team, even like the Celtics, I don't remember what their over under is, but it's probably around 55. Like it's not like no one's expected, expected to win like 60 games in a season. So, um, so I think that that kind of puts a cap on how good the Knicks are going to be just because like you have to be a really dominant team to, to really project to win that many games. But I do agree. I think, their biggest weakness is the defensive end. And I do think that probably odds makers are not as confident that that offense is replicable again for another year, like to do it the way they did um, dominate the offensive boards, get continue to get extra chance after extra chance and then not shoot. commit no turnovers, commit no yeah. turnovers. Look, look like, at, look at quickly, quickly and Brunson both had like sub 7% turnover rates, which I mean, when Chris Paul, I know they're not creating like Chris Paul was and peak Chris Paul is like, I don't know, maybe one day we'll have a conversation about how he's like one of the most underrated players of all time. But he yeah, was, you absolutely. know, his, his assist percentage was like around 50% and his turnover <laughs> percentage was, his turnover percentage was sub 10%. Like yeah, he was, it was unreal. It's absurd. Yeah, it's absurd. And, and quickly and Brunson were both had lower turnover percentages than prime Chris Paul. Like that's, that's what they were doing. Tibbs was like, yeah, just don't give it to the other team. They're, yeah, well, as, exactly. It was just like, don't give it to the other team. And the way the best way to do that is to like not give it to your team either. <laughs> like, because uh, ball movement while cre- generating more efficient shots and, and better shot quality can also generate turnovers. I've, as we've seen year after year with the dynastic warriors, um, who are some of the most prolific passing and ball movement teams, but also have tons of turnovers every game i think it balances out better to the side of efficiency than it does than than you care as much about turnovers but it's it's a it's a strategy that worked for the knicks offense last year and um i don't think that the Ozmakers think that the knicks can just do that same thing again for a whole nother year i I, and, and to be honest i'm a little skeptical i'd love to see it but do I think that the Knicks can just dominate the possession battle and the extra chance battle again after everyone knows exactly what they're trying to do? And we've seen some cracks in the armor from from uh, coaches like Spolstra and 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 we've seen the issues when they play like you mentioned, Jeff, a stretch big um, when Mitch has to come out and can't be around that dunker spot waiting to, to, to crash the offensive boards. I don't know. I'm not sure that they'll be able to replicate that. So I think there, there's there's just a range of things that can happen to to keep to put a cap on how amazing that this team can be. I think their ceiling can be extremely high, but I do think like a reasonable range for them is like 
the 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 49 to 52 game win mark um so i'm curious what you think as far as like season long expectations i'm i'm actually a bit higher i think or at least on the ceiling i've said before i actually think this team can win 55 to 60 games um if things go right i, I mean they need injury luck like they had last season but 60 I do think games i just want i just want to pause for the audience 60 games that's incredible what so yeah i'd love to hear your thought process behind that they just don't they if if they stay healthy and again that's when you have a ceiling that's you know you're you're a healthy team uh or excuse me when you hit your ceiling it's not like the 73 win warriors were like struggling with injuries they they had that five-man lineup available the whole season um but no i don't think this is the 73 win warriors um they won't play a bad player or even close to a bad player, which in today's league is like amazing. Yeah. Like their, their nine man rotation will be guys who are plus impact players. And I think they're probably the only team that can say that. I don't know. Deepest I, I team in the NBA. I don't even know who second place would be. Like I, I mean, we could think about it, but I don't even know who second, I, it's clearly the Knicks are the deepest team in the NBA. And uh, this is the second time I'm going to mention a line for people who are listening. Obviously, this is everybody's first time listening. We're not a betting pot at all, even though people who know me know my background is gambling. But I'm going to say this because me and XJ have both talked about this off the air. The Knicks are plus 1800 to win the East. They're plus 3500 to get the one seed. That's ridiculous. That <laughs> For anybody who knows like the ins and outs of this Knicks team and this head coach, they are way more likely to get the one seed than to win the East. Like they, like Tom Thibodeau is going to go all out for wins this season. It's a very good team and his shortcomings, which it's okay that he has them. It's okay to acknowledge that he has them. They poke their head in the postseason. Some po- poke their head in the regular season, but the ones that poke their head in the regular season relate to preparing for the playoffs. I don't really like Tom Thibodeau pre- prepares as good as any coach does. Um, Night in, night out, he has a game plan. He gives his guys a chance to win. If I have a complaint about Tom Thibodeau, it's like, oh, man, like he's just driving this same lineup into the ground and we are not properly prepared for the playoffs. That's a conversation down the line. There's no way they should be twice as long to win to, to get the one seed as to win the East because, like I said, this is a 60-win ceiling team and it starts with their depth and it's it also stems from – you know, they're going to get improvement from all these different players. Like I know I kind of joked about that earlier, but it's reasonable to expect improvement from pretty much every player on the roster, except for Randall. And that's not even hating on Randall. It's not saying he's old. It's just, he was incredibly high impact last season. It's hard to be better than he was last season. I'm curious what you think about this. I think it's possible unless he makes another leap. And you know how high, high, how high I am on this individual player. I think it's possible that from a pure impact EPM Raptor standpoint, quickly never plays a better season. What do you think of that? Do you think that's crazy? Like, I better better season than he did last year. Yeah. No, I I think that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 the reason why I think that's crazy is because. I think I think if you said he never plays a higher defensive EPM season or defensive impact season, I would say, yeah, that's not crazy. That's reasonable to say. I think he left so much meat on the bone on the offensive end um, that even if his defense is not up to that level, his offense will sur- like vastly surpass the way that he conducted himself last year. To be um, clear, I, I do think he's going to get better. Like 
Yeah, we yeah. Know Emmanuel, we know Emmanuel quickly. I just meant purely from yeah, yeah. analytics impact standpoint. No, I told, I know exactly okay. what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know exactly what you mean. But I think, I think in terms of like impact metrics, like impact on the game, um, value provided to his team in his role. Actually, Quickly's first two seasons were both way better than his than the, his most recent season, um, and I think. It's not shocking. It wouldn't be shocking to anyone if quickly produced how he did in his rookie season as, as an offensive player, as in terms of impact, minute for minute. You're saying his offensive impact was way better, not overall, right? Offensive impact, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think so basically what I'm trying to say is I think quickly can maintain that the level of defense that he played last year in terms of impacting the game. Um around that extent. Now, if he never did as well on in terms of like how the metrics uh, view him, I wouldn't be shocked by that on defense, but I think he's going to come close on offense. I think he can do a lot more. I think his shooting is going to come along. I think that people often forget that when he was drafted, his main strength was his shooting. Like he was seen as an offensive player who can provide impact via his uh, spacing, stretching, stretching the floor um, and making shots. And he, you know, he shot 37% from three last year. He shot 39% in his rookie season. I think he's a 39, 40% three-point shooter. And I think we're going to see that again. I think for he, he, the guy's 24 years old. I think we're going to see him shoot a, a 39, have another 39% from three season, especially as his shot selection improves. Um, I think his ball handling is going to get better and he'll be able to uh, do a lot more as far as get probing and getting into the paint. Um, and I think, I mean, I hate to say this, if he were not on the Knicks for some reason at any point in his career, he is going to have an opportunity to 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 be a, a more of a facilitator, which I think will increase his impact as well. Can you kind of quickly de- pun? Can you uh, delve into why you think Quickly's offensive impact was lower last season than it was the first two? Because I mean, if if I'm uh, I don't even want to say casual fan. If I'm you know someone who loves the NBA but only loves it to a certain point, I'm looking at basketball reference pages. I look at Emmanuel Quickly's basketball reference page. I see most minutes he's ever played. I see career high true shooting percentage. I see even, you know, delving into, you know, some of the more flawed advanced analytics. You know, I see career high offensive win shares. Okay, maybe that's volume based. I see, you know, you just look across the board and you just see all these things. Uh, the assist percentage wasn't as high as 21-22. Okay, the usage was his career low actually, but turnover percentage is also around career low. So what do you think like is the next step or as you said, the meat on the bone that he, or the low hanging fruit that he can grow? Yeah. I, I, to me, I think it's the role. I think it's a role that he was in. Um, I think he was in a more kind of contained role on the offensive end and was, was used as more of a, a spacer. He wasn't asked to do as much, but like his existence on the court, meant a lot more because he was making shots at like a 40 nearly a 40 percent clip and I, that's why i think to me people know who know me and i've had conversations with and any in social media anywhere else and on other podcasts like i care so much about shooting and and spacing the floor and i think that that really to me is the reason why his impact was so much greater um not so much greater but what's greater in his first season because even though his true shooting was worse than it was last year his three-point shooting was much better and i i just think it comes down to that i think it comes down to how he was spacing how he was used and again 
the you when your usage goes up, it's not likely that your um that your impact goes up because uh there there's just more burden on that player to to be the one to create like positive plays as opposed to create things with like their their movement like running through screens, cut making cuts, um just catch and shooting right like you can make a positive impact through doing all of those things. But now once you're on ball, you have a lot more opportunity to make a negative impact, right? Like, and it's not just through turnovers, it's through your decision-making. And I think quickly did really well. Again, like if we just looking at impact quickly had a really great season, a top like quartile uh, impact season last year, um, which is excellent. It's really amazing. There's no, there's no issue with it, but I think you do have an opportunity to have a negative impact through your decision-making and not making the right plays. And I mean, I think I'll I'll let you respond to that, but we, I think it's a natural segue to talk about another player on the Knicks who um, we're curious to see what his his impact is going to be like uh, this season as well. But I'll, I'll let you respond to that quickly. I just don't agree with the conclusion you drew about specifically comparing his rookie season versus his third year, his third third season or last season. So quickly shot 39% from three his rookie season. Um, and he shot nine threes for 36. He shot 37% from three last season. And he shot seven threes for 36. I don't think, first of all, just right there in a vacuum, I don't think that difference is large enough to say that one season he had a higher impact on his teammates than the other season. I would bet a lot of money that if we had a way to like break down how much teams closed out on him, how much they stayed attached to him off the ball, that it was pretty neutral. And then to go along with that, I would also say that in my opinion, the difference wasn't even in him as in his him as a quality shooter. The difference is made up for by year one, he was a rookie who was like the sixth option. And year three, he was a primary initiator for a good team. He was drawing more attention. You could actually argue that quickly shooting was more valuable in his third season than his first season because it's just easier for him playing off of Julius Randle, playing off of Alec Burks, off of Derrick Rose, off of RJ Barrett, off of all these guys to shoot 39% on mostly catch and shoots than when he's shooting more pull-ups, more off the dribble in his third season. So if anything, I would argue that his gravity was higher last season. Yeah, and 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 we've we've talked about this like off off mic before, but I, I do want to say like, so just to clarify for the audience, like impact metrics they're really trying to assess one thing which is causally what is there a causal relationship between the team's performance and and success when that player when whatever player we're looking at is on the court so it doesn't really in the in their role specifically on their team um so it doesn't really matter like if the player is better or worse or has more skills or fewer skills all that matters is like when they're on the court are they causing a better performance for the team or not or are they involved in causing a better performance uh, for the team or not so i just think that i think that this the the way that the numbers work it's a top down metric so it's not looking really at like how good is his shooting how good is are his skills how much is he on ball how much is he off ball like that these metrics don't really look at that. And to me, this is an argument that the shooting percentages do make a difference in terms of how teams treat you and the gravitational pull that players have on the court, even if there's like not a huge difference between the shooting, actual shooting 
percentages with regard to like makes and misses. Um, I think quickly came out of college with the reputation as a shooter. Um, I think that teams in the minimal scouting that they probably do for rookies just said that guy's a shooter. Like that's, that's it. That's all they know. Like he doesn't do anything well. He's not, you don't have to worry about him doing anything else besides shooting. And if that's your reputation, he's going to have a more of a gravitational pull, even then if he was a more multidimensional player, even if he was a guy who can do other things, um, because now teams are like, well, we're, we're not so worried about his shooting. If we were, if we recall the previous year, um, his rook, his uh, sophomore season was his worst. I, I believe was his worst shooting season. I need to look up the stats. I I, I lost the page. Oh yeah, it was his worst shooting season. He shot thirty four point six percent from three. So I think all of those things matter, and I think that kind of what we're seeing in the trends with the metrics actually supports the idea that small differences or um, you know medium sized differences in terms of shooting percentages and reputations actually has a greater effect on how the how you impact teams how you bend teams um, with your gravitational pull so that's that's what I would say obviously there's no way we can know that for sure but that that would be my working hypothesis yeah, I mean that's a that's a good answer, of course. Um, I still think we just need. I don't want to say better, but yeah, I guess I do want to say better, better data because it's just very hard to hard for me to believe that quickly was a more impactful offensive player in year one than in year three, in terms of impact on teammates. Um, in his role, though, and, in his role, so right, right. No, I get, yeah. I get, I get, I yeah. get in his role. I'm just, yeah. Um, and we can we can move on off that and on to you know the guy you were alluding to earlier, who is R.J. Barrett, who, for whatever reason, and I'm going to present a theory, but the data and the analytics, all of it, just despises him, and it's pretty much despised him his whole career, um, which is that sucks. Like you take a guy number three overall, you want him to be good. Um, but also he's, I mean, I named my freaking Twitter account after him. He's beloved in New York, you know, like um, he, everybody, you know, you watch him and like for people listening, like we saw that we all watched the playoffs with our two eyes. You know, we, we, he played 11 games. He played four or five ranging from rock solid to very good. And everyone watched those games and they were like, okay, he's taking a step up from what was admittedly a poor regular season. And then you look at the on-off data and, you know, he's once again an outlier. Like the Knicks were plus 9.3 when he sat <laughs> per hundred and uh, and tied for a team worse minus three per hundred when he was on. So they were twelve over 12 points worse per hundred when RJ played than when he sat. Um now, to be completely fair, a lot of that is tied to the minutes he shared with Josh Hart. Him and Josh Hart played like half their minutes together or something, and they lost those minutes by 14 points per 100 possessions. They were just absolutely slaughtered in those minutes. Um, other teams did not respect RJ and Hart at the two and three, did not think, did not care about them if they were one or two passes away. And that allowed them to help off when Brunson or Randall, mostly Brunson, let's be frank, um, was trying to do stuff inside the paint. So here's my theory about RJ Barrett and uh, analytics. RJ right now is 
he's shown flashes as a defender, but on the whole, at least for the last, at least for last season, he wasn't a very good defender um, being generous. He definitely wasn't a good passer on his drives. He passed on like 29% of his drives or something. He upped that number to 40 or 45% in the playoffs, which was encouraging. Um, so what RJ Barrett is right now is a scorer. And he doesn't score very efficiently, despite the fact that he gets to the rim and gets into the paint as good as almost any player in the league. I'm not going to say any player in the league, but he is elite at getting two feet in the paint and to getting to good spots. And so when you're optimizing RJ Barrett, like they tried to do in the playoffs, like we all saw, you know, Tibbs basically said, okay, Randall doesn't have it quickly, doesn't have it. I'm going to reduce their roles. RJ, you're our number two guy now. He's going to prioritize scoring. And even when he does it better than we've seen him be capable of, so like we saw him improve from the regular season to the playoffs, that's still worse than the average number two option. And I think that's what the impact data is trying to say. We're all relating it to, okay, RJ Barrett's playing the best basketball we've ever seen him play. But the impact data doesn't care that RJ improved on a poor regular season. What they care about is, okay, this is in his role as the number two option. This is the output he's putting up. And compared to other number two options, it's not good. Like even in the playoffs, you look at his playoffs, you know, he, he wasn't super efficient. What was his true shooting in the playoffs? Like 54, 55 or something I think it was like 55%. That. Yeah. Yeah. So that's good. But league average for the season was 58. Um, that probably goes down in the playoffs. Let's say league average is 56. Okay. So he's average efficiency. He's just, even though he improved, he's not creating offense at a level that a high impact second option is. And I think that's how you have to frame it. If you're trying to objectively assess what his overall impact was. Knicks fans were all biased. We all loved that playoff run. We're all super into the moment and RJ Barrett was called the X factor. And so you're already watching it through a lens of, okay, RJ is coming off kind of a shaky regular season and oh my God, he's playing better. You're immediately going to be biased. These analytics are not biased and I'm not saying they're perfect. I'm, I'm, I'm actually like not even saying that I think, oh, this means RJ was bad. The Knicks were no, I'm just trying to frame why for whatever reason, the analytics do not like RJ Barrett. And I'm going to pass it over to you, XJ. First of all, how do you feel about that? Second of all, if that's true, what steps does RJ Barrett need to take as a player? So all of a sudden his impact is higher. I, I think you, honestly, I think you, you crushed it because I have a very similar perspective on this question. And I think how I think about it is like, it only matters that he's the second option um, in terms of its relevancy to looking at how the metrics view him because he's using so many possessions. So if you're using a possession and if you're using a lot of possessions and you have to make sure that the possessions that you're using generates efficient uh, shots. And if you're not generates efficient shots that are made (laughs) um, because otherwise you're the one that's impacting the game. And if your impact, it leads to inefficient shots you're not doing your job well. Um, So for instance, I think that RJ can generate efficient shots, but I don't think his decision-making allows it to kind of play out that way. When he takes shots at the rim, he can get there all day. Um, But 
he doesn't make them at an efficient clip. And so if you're using a bunch of possessions, those possessions are not efficient. Impact metrics are going to pick that up. They're going to say, wow, every time this guy uses possessions, they don't go well. <laughs> They're not scoring at an efficient, an efficient way. I think that the way that RJ can change that is in the same way that a lot of us have talked about, a lot of various people have talked about, you've talked about, Jeff, um, is passing out a lot more than he does. And he started to do that in the playoffs and it started to work well. And honestly, his impact in the playoffs was better than we saw in the regular season. Um, the plus minus stuff is full of uh, a noise, uh, one would say. And I and it's it's really what you talked about, playing a ton with heart with, in a lineup that didn't work. And in the playoffs for the Knicks, honestly, the only players that were going to have a good plus minus are players that played a ton of minutes with Brunson because Brunson was literally the only guy that was like elevating that team into to, to plus plus minus territory. Um, don't don't for don't and and the guy who just you know they always seem to win his minutes. <laughs> and quickly, of the, course, the, the guy who <laughs> led the guy who led the team in on court plus minus by having the worst playoffs ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and quickly, of course, obviously, quickly's. Uh, impact on on uh, what came on the defensive end, which is is harder for people to notice, I think, than it is for someone who's just scoring every time very efficiently. Um, but yes, of course, and quickly. But but I guess just like my point is that for RJ to 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 actually be seen as a positive contributor, as a as a positive value guy by the impact metrics, he's going to have to be generating efficient shots with the possessions that he uses. And the only way for him to do that, if he's not going to suddenly become like a better finisher around the rim, is going to be to pass, uh, to make better decisions and to pass to really efficient shots. And he has the capability of doing it. We saw it some in the playoffs. He just has to do it a lot more. And the funny thing is like the RJ that we saw in the playoffs, like you mentioned, Jeff, like comparative to his regular season, we're like, wow, this guy's amazing. But really, that's like, that should be his floor. Like his the, his playoff performance should be like, that's what you get from RJ on a regular night, like kind of like a, a, a solid night from RJ, like it's all right. And then he can go up from that based on like making threes more often, um, based on finishing at the rim, uh, drawing more fouls. Those are ways that he can ascend from that floor. But that should be the baseline. What we saw from him in the playoffs, to me, it should be RJ Barrett's floor on a day-in, day-out basis. And then we can see elevations on some nights when he really has it going. He's hitting his three. Um, he's able to, to, to really attack people's hands and, and draw fouls. To me, that's that's kind of the next level. So, um, yeah, I just think his playoff performance in this this regular season, it would be ideal if that was like his floor performance. And then we would see the impact metrics would completely swing around the other way. Yeah, I always say, uh, before we move on, I, I always say RJ needs to get to a point where his floor, where, where scoring and shooting almost has no um, impact on his floor. Like he needs to get to a place where his defense, his rebounding, and his passing rates on drives are so good and so helpful that the only thing his scoring and three point shooting specifically do is determine what how high his ceiling can be. And that's kind of, you know, I hate framing it as these two against each other. Like fans do it all the time. We should just love both these players as Knicks fans. But that's what quickly has done. That's what you saw in the playoffs. Like quickly's floor is what you saw in the playoffs is still a guy who can help you because his defense is that good because, Oh crap. I'm not, I don't have it on offense. Okay. 
I can still run around and set screens and people will still pay attention to me off the ball. Like I'm not saying he was a positive offensively. He was a negative offensively, but it wasn't as bad as maybe what a compilation film would look like. RJ can get to that place too. Now he, and you could actually make the argument that he has an even higher ceiling because positional value, he played, he's, he's a wing. He, he could be a three, four hybrid wing. That's probably the most important position in the league. Um, and he's he does something that quickly probably will never be able to do, and that's get to the rim at an elite rate. So he already has those things. And if he just starts profiling, shot profile, pass distribution, overall defensive impact, if these things that we've seen him do in flashes, if they become more consistent, it almost doesn't really matter if he's a 32 or a 36% three-point shooter. That will only dictate his ceiling. So I, I largely agree with this. I do think I do not see him becoming like that high impact defensive player. And a lot of it has to do with just like instincts and attention to detail and the ability to just like have unrelenting focus when you're not really in, don't or you don't feel like you're involved in the play. And those are things that I think are really difficult to like teach and learn like quickly did do that, which is which is I think one of the reasons why I like respect him so much as a player, it's like incredible that he came in with his weakness or came in from the, from, from college with his weakness being seen as like defense. And then now that's like his strength. And he's one of the best off ball defensive players in the, in the NBA. Um, I think that's incredible. I don't think we'll see that happen for a lot of players. I don't think we'll see that happen for RJ, but I do think on the offensive end, he can be like at his floor, like a positive impact player. Um, and it's just going to come down to that decision-making. But the last thing I want to talk about this before we kind of switch gears and just go to like single game analyses uh, of the games coming up this season is on this same topic. Like I just said, my belief that I don't think RJ is ever going to become like a, a, a really strong impact defensive player. I think he can get to like about neutral um, to a little bit better, but potentially as a ceiling, do you think there would be some validity to the idea of Josh Hart starting and RJ coming off the bench? Um, and the reason I ask that is because I just think Brunson needs better defenders with him in the starting unit. Uh, they have enough creation, in my opinion, between Brunson and Randall. And we saw in the playoffs, for instance, Brunson almost provides enough creation on his own. Um, but we throw Hart in there, and now you have more support for Brunson on the defensive side of the ball where the Knicks were seven points worse on defense with Brunson on the court last year, which is like, that's like bottom of the barrel. Like you're like what, like in the impact metrics as well, grade him out to be one of the worst defensive players in the, in the league, as far as like his impact on that side of the ball and in lineups with Brunson and Hart on the court together, it was a small sample size, but the defense is much more passable, kind of like mid range in the NBA and they crushed it offensively. So I don't know. I just, think there could be some merit to RJ actually coming off the ball being one of the being the focal point um of the second unit as far as like the offensive engine and Hart just working better as a as a as a defensive support for Brunson in the starting unit because defense I think really has been their issue but I don't think but they have so many good defenders that it, it doesn't feel like it should be so I'm just curious of your thoughts on that so there's not enough data to, you know, be super confident. Um, the lineup that you're suggesting only played 37, uh, 35, 30, 37 minutes last season. Uh, they did win those 37 minutes by over 20 points per hundred, which is hilarious. Um, 
And the defense with Hart and RJ's spot was eight points per hundred better. But again, small sample, lots of noise. Yeah, yeah. Um, So here's what I'll say. And this isn't going to be super analytical, but whatever. That has merit. It it actually wouldn't surprise me if that five-man unit is better. Like, actually, it wouldn't surprise me also if Quickly and Grimes' spot is better. It wouldn't, like, with heart is what I'm saying. Like, Quickly plus heart and then the uh, Mitch, Randall, uh, Brunson. Uh, It wouldn't surprise me if Quickly and RJ's spot, uh, there's a a huge sample for that, by the way, uh, of Mitch, Randall, uh, Quickly, Grimes, Brunson. That lineup absolutely eviscerates teams. Um, But what I'm worried about is the head coach of it all. Because if you put Josh Hart in for RJ Barrett and Tibbs loves Josh Hart, and we've talked about how he rotates plenty. Um, He doesn't make a substitution until around the four minute mark of each half. Your starters are playing the first eight minutes of each half pretty much unilaterally, unless there's foul trouble. Now you have probably your two most important young players, both reduced to how do they get 26 minutes a game from a long-term ceiling aspect? I don't love it because even though I do agree, like pretty much what you have to be saying right now is to, to justify that is I think we can win a championship this year. I think we can get RJ Barrett to buy into it for a season or two, because whatever you think of RJ Barrett, he does not buy into the idea of himself as a long-term sixth man or something like that, like quickly doesn't even. And he doesn't have the pedigree that RJ Barrett does. Like he wasn't a top three pick. He's not making nine figures right now. So you need, you need success. And, and let like that lineup would have success, but the starting lineup had success last season too. Like they, they were like, they were one of the most played lineups in the league plus seven net rating. It was a good lineup. I just don't think you can justify it from a, from an intangible aspect, from a, a locker room aspect. I don't know how you could get RJ Barrett to buy into that. And then just thinking, even if you were like playing NBA 2K and it was totally emotionless, I'm not sure long-term it's the best decision. I think it would hurt RJ's trade value if that's the direction you're looking to go in. And I, he definitely has a higher ceiling than Josh Hart. So I think that you want to capture that. And your goal even if your goal is to win a championship, which to be clear, the Knicks, that should be their goal. RJ Barrett hitting his ceiling has to be a part of that journey. And I think he's less likely to hit his ceiling coming off the bench. I think that's a super thoughtful and, and quite accurate response as far as like all the points that you hit. Like I, I think that's probably right. And, and really the reasons why you, what you said are, are probably why it will never happen. Um, but at the same time, I do think this is probably, in my opinion, why RJ is the the name mentioned most often in trade rumors, because I do think that would be the like the only part I disagree with you on is like in 2K with this, like, you know, where there were no emotions involved and you can just move players wherever you want. Would this be the better option? I do think it would be the better option, like even long term. Um, I think the skill sets just mesh together better. 
Um, I think RJ kind of like being in a role where he is more of the alpha usage guy where I think he'd be actually more willing to make to to play make and kick out and make passes um, because he knows he's going to get his. And I think when he's in the starting unit with Brunson and Randall, it's like they're going to take a bunch of shots. I need to take a bunch of shots because this is the only way I'm going to score. Like I, I, I see like I think it, as in the second unit, he's going to think, well, I'll, I'm happy to kick out and dish because I can take I can get my shots whenever I want. Um, so well, I think this, it is why, this is why, though, like, uh, I mean, this is a different discussion, but this is why the best teams don't have units like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like yeah. you could just you Fair could enough. just you could you could do what Budenholzer did in Milwaukee and sub RJ out at the seven minute mark of the first yeah. quarter, you know, Absolutely. and all of a sudden you're mixing and matching and. Hart could play more minutes with the starters. And then you also keep that feeling yeah. of like, like if you just weighed lineups m- differently and you mix and match more, there's a way to get RJ Barrett starters minutes, starters role, but have him play with Brunson less. Yeah, that's possible. That's totally right. And I think that that's the, I think that that's kind of like should be the closing point because I think that's totally true. And if, if there are ways to stagger and, and, and match the line and match lineups, so that you can have the starters be the starters and still take advantage of some of these other combinations. Um, and and I'm not going to say we'll, <laughs> we probably won't see it this year, but um, it would be nice to see that eventually if, if, if all these guys are here long term. Um, so, yeah, let, let's let's switch gears into our last conversation topic, which is really just talking about the first three games of the season. I mean, this is it. We're here. We're at the regular season. Um, here on Hot Hand Theory, we're gonna break we're gonna break down the the upcoming games. We're gonna recap the the previous games and then break down the upcoming games every week. Um, so this is our first time doing it. Let's 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 go ahead and go forward. Let's talk about Game One: Celtics at the Knicks. Um, starting the season with a new look Celtics with uh, Holiday and and Kristaps Porzingis. Um, I'm gonna actually uh, just start kind of going here and and I know we have similar thoughts on the topic, but there's a few things I wanted to mention. Um, with the Celtics, for my thoughts, I want to talk about spacing. Um, so on the Knicks Film School podcast, we did a mock draft exercise. Um, GMAC, uh, Andrew Claudio is going to love that I'm bringing this up. Um, we did a mock draft exercise where we drafted players between the ages of 25 and 29 to see who could create the best team possible. So my draft strategy was uh, to create the best spot-up three-point shooting team that's ever existed. And it worked extremely well. I think I was able to accomplish that, um, even though that this team did not actually exist. It was just a figment of our, our draft imaginations. However, when opened up for a vote on Twitter, voters had me in last place. They said, this is the worst team of the four that we had created. Um, and I think that was probably because I didn't have you're, enough. You're, you're definitely not, you're definitely not still spiteful, by the way. You're, you're <laughs> definitely, you're definitely not still angry about that. <laughs> you have not, you have not been waiting to get this rant yeah, off. No. I, I, I didn't just, I didn't just co co-found my own podcast with you specifically just to be able to talk about this. Like <laughs> that definitely didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but 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 yes, I, I I think to me what it shined a light on is that in a general sense, among other things, it showed me that there's just an unappreciation of the value of spacing. Like I think that spacing and gravity, or you know, gravity meaning how much off-ball players draw uh, defenders towards them on the offensive end, 
these are the most important factors to me in professional basketball. Like, like one of, if not the most important factors. And it can turn, it can turn a defense that is, you know, a team defense. Everybody talks about defense being a team concept and you have to be on a string and work together. It turns a te- a defense from a team almost into individuals trying to play defense because, um, and it makes the court um, smaller or bigger, I should say, and it makes everyone on the court better. So if you have elite shooters on the court, the defense is going to have a much tougher time sagging into the paint to provide help. And of course, defenses want to sag into the paint to protect the most valuable shot, which are shots at the rim. But what do they have to do to do that? They have to give up clean looks for the second most valuable shot, which is an open three from a high-level shooter. So that extra extra couple of feet, uh, you know, towards the shooter that off-ball defenders need to be means that they're going to be slower to be able to help drivers. They're going to be slower to be able to like make rotations. They have to further to go. Thus, everyone on the court is getting high higher efficiency shots, higher value shots. Now, why did I go on this rant? Because it relates to the Celtics. The Celtics have loaded up their teams with shooters, and Joe Mazzulla's ph- philosophy is literally to put up threes. There are no reluctant shooters on the court. <laughs> um, last year, the Celtics led the, the league uh, in three-point attempts. It was three-point attempts per 100 possessions. It was 42.3 per 100. So for reference, the Knicks also shot a ton of threes, but took six fewer threes per 100. Now, the Celtics have even better shooters than they had last year, including shooters at all positions, one through five. Um, they're playing my dream five-out scenario with uh, uh, Porzingis and Horford as their two bigs. We're talking Holiday, Peyton Pritchard, uh, Jalen Brown, Derek White, Jason Tatum, even Sam Hauser, uh, Porzingis, and Horford are all either good or elite shooters in the league. So this is going to be a test for the Knicks. I think they're going to have to absolutely dominate the offensive boards to have a chance to beat the Celtics. Um or just you know pray that they get extremely poor you know shooting luck for the Celtics that night. I think it's an extremely tough matchup. I have the Celtics as the best team in the East. I think this is going to be a proof of concept year for the value of spacing and that spacing changes based on the types of shooters that you have out on the court. Um, so we'll see. But you know I'm excited for the game. I'm excited that it's at, it's at MSG and it's it's going to be a great first test for the Knicks. So I'm curious your thoughts on that, Jeff. The Celtics are going to test Knicks fans' willpower because Tibbs is great at figuring stuff out. The one thing we've always struggled with him in three seasons is stretch fives. And look, this is a totally um, like different conversation, but I've never been a fan of matching high-end talent with volatility. I actually think that the great team should be trying to reduce variance. I think that's why Michael Jordan was so successful when his teams were the best because his shots were incredibly high floor shots. He wasn't a Steph Curry. Like the, if you're, if you're a great team, but you're reliant on the volatility of threes, you're more likely to get upset. It's harder for you to put together four consecutive high floor series in a postseason setting than it is if you're Michael Jordan and you're shooting 50% from two. You're scoring half the time, you know, like, uh, and, and and so no, maybe your ceiling isn't as high, but 
that doesn't really a ceiling doesn't really matter as much because you don't get extra points for winning playoff games by more. You, you get you get points for winning the games. Um, and so what the Celtics are going to do this season, there are going to be stretches when they just look nuclear against the Knicks because they bring the Knicks kryptonite and they they are packaging him with four other guys who are going to be able to shoot and are going to be willing shooters. So, I mean, we saw it in the last preseason game. We saw it. I mean, I know the Nick, it was the Knicks backups, but let's be frank. It was the Knicks backups, but it was a better defensive lineup than what the Knicks starting lineup is going to be. It was Deuce McBride. It was Mitchell Robinson. It was Quentin Grimes. It was Dante DiVincenzo. All those guys are plus defenders. Like peak defensive lineup. Yeah. It was yeah. like, it was like the Knicks best defensive, the, the best defense they could throw out there. And the Celtics torched them. They did whatever they wanted. Um, and that's going to happen this season. I'm a little less sold on their ceiling and from a team's success standpoint, because again, I, to bring it back to my point, I, I just don't believe in high volatility, great teams. I think you need to pair it with something more, a foundation that's more consistently sustainable. And so even though that 73 wins war that 73 win Warriors team didn't win the championship. And even though they were pushed to the brink in seven in the Western conference finals against the thunder, and then they eventually lost in seven to the Cavs. The reason that they ended up winning three championships in four seasons, the reason that they were consistently successful is because their foundation, even though they're known as the three point, uh, you know, light years ahead offense, they had defense. That was what they brought every single season. They were an elite defense led by Draymond Green. That is why Impact Stats love Draymond Green. People think he's a joke. People, oh, he looks like he's holding a backpack when he shoots and he he's averages eight points a game. How good could he really be? He does Draymond, look like he has a backpack on when he shoots, though. <laughs> that's wild. Um, he was the second most important player to that dynasty. Second and a half, if you want to include the Kevin Durant three the three years Durant was there. Obviously he's not more important than Kevin Durant was, but people put him in conversations with Clay Thompson as if they're no, no <laughs> Draymond green is a tier above Clay Thompson. And it's because he was the anchor of that defense. So to me, the Celtic season is going to come down to how consistently they can defend. And Kristaps Porzingis was a good defender last season. A great, he had a great rim protecting season last year. In fact, EPM loved him. They put him in the same tier as Robert Williams, which Robert Williams was in defensive player of the year conversations. Like everyone loves Robert Williams. And they're basically saying that, Oh, you're getting like 90% of Robert Williams defensively. And now he can shoot threes. That's insane. Like the Celtics are scary. I'm not downplaying the Celtics, but if they win a championship, if they win the East, they're either one going to get high end shooting luck and just go nuclear from three consistently which is much harder to depend on or they're going to build a defensive foundation around drew holiday on the perimeter consistent defense from jalen jalen brown and jason tatum on the wings and chris f porzingis is going to stay healthy and protect the rim to a degree that robert williams was able to last season that's what i think of the celtics this season yeah i just to, to close the loop because i agree with most of what you said I think that 
volatility, like shooting volatility is a really complicated thing. I think that three-point shooting volatility actually reduces when you're getting open three-point shots. And it's always going to be volatile to some extent. These are long-range threes that we're talking about. Guys, you know, the, the, the kind of uh, the variance uh, of makes uh, is going to change from game to game. I and mean, we see guys like quickly go through these streaks where um, he'll be hot for a few games, you know, shoot like 60% from three over the course of five games and then shoot like 10% from three over the next five games. Like it's like that's the volatility that we're talking about. But it really depends on the kind of threes that you're getting. There's always going to be some volatility, but if you're getting open threes consistently, generally we don't see as big a swings in terms of makes and misses. So I think the Celtics are always going to get a ton of open threes just because they're all excellent shooters and the course going to be spaced. Not only that, they have guys who can get to the rim when they when they really need to. Um, although Tatum can be a little sketchy uh, with, with finishing at times, he can get there um, and so can Brown. So I, I, I hear that concern, but I, I really think the thing that I agree with you the most on is that the, the, the sample size is going to, to kind of determine what we see from the team. So what I mean by that is the Celtics, I think, are going to be a regular season powerhouse as long as they're healthy, because all that matters is that we have an 82 game sample that we're talking about. And over the course of that sample, guys are going to shoot their percentages. All of these guys that I mentioned are going to shoot at least league average from three. And some of them are going to shoot 40% from three. Um, so we're going to see that balance out over the course of a season. Now, in a short series, they could all go cold. Who knows? Um, that can obviously happen over the course of four to seven games. So I, I'm not sure. I'm not saying they're going to win the title. I think, I, I mean, I would have the Bucks right now uh, as far as like who's going to win the title but it's between the bucks and the nuggets to me um and i have the celtics on the outside looking in but i do think as far as the regular season health permitted health provided uh the celtics are going to be the top dog in the regular season to me just based on that 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 large sample size and just seeing guys hit their numbers i think they're going to win a ton of games so um i'm gonna, yeah, you I'm gonna say, say something to i'm just out? gonna say something maybe a little crazy i, I think that I think that the five man lineup of Holiday, White, Brown, Tatum, and Porzingis might break offensive rating and net rating record. I, like I think it's going to be the best five man lineup in basketball, and I I'd be surprised if it's close. It, it, given like minimum minutes or whatever, like it, it oh, yeah. whatever the whatever the acceptable minimum is for lineups that play a lot. I think it's going to destroy the league. Like I just, because it, I don't understand what you do against it. I just, they have everything. Um, Like, you know, we get jokes off about Jalen Brown, not going left or whatever. He's a good offensive player, a really good offensive player. Who cares if he's not worth $300 million? The Celtics needed to keep him if they weren't going to trade. Like it, they, they couldn't risk losing him unless they were going to trade him for a really good player. He's important to their team. He's a good offensive player who's still young and getting better. Jason Tatum is a star. Chris Epps Porzingis is coming off a very high impact season for on both ends and can is going to help them intangibly by helping with his gravity off the ball. Drew Holiday is now their fourth. Like Drew Holiday and Derek White are basically like the Spider-Man meme pointing at each other. Like they 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 don't have to do anything. Um the Drew Holiday discussion has become very, very frustrating to me because he was the second most important player on a championship team barely two years ago. And we saw what that looked like. We all watched it with our eyes. 
He was the third option on offense, so there was less pressure on him offensively. And his defense, he was probably the most important player defensively. Uh, although, obviously, I mean, the fact that him and Giannis and Brooke Lopez were on the court together is preposterous to me, but whatever. Um, all of a sudden, Chris Middleton gets hurt, and Giannis is still Giannis. He's still a great player, one of the best players in the league, maybe the best, maybe the second best player in the league. I can't believe Jokic. Um, but he's still flawed when the game is close down the stretch. You can't just give him the ball and get a bucket. That's not what Giannis does. Somebody needs to be that guy. And with Chris Middleton hurt, they were like, okay, Drew Holiday, it's your turn. Of course, he's not going to look great. That's not the kind of player he is. Like, that's yeah. not why he's great. And so we're now judging him in this context that isn't really relevant to what makes him great as a player. He's about to return to that context. He's going to be, assuming he doesn't fall off a cliff athletically, or there's not like, you know, because he is older, he's 33 years old. Assuming he's able to be the quality basketball player he was the last few years, his impact is going to return to being as high as it's ever been because the context of his role has now reverted to what is optimal for him. So he's going to be an incredibly important player to the Celtics. And Derek White is really fucking good. Like that, that lineup, Derek White is the worst player in a starting lineup. Derek White operating in his optimal paradigm is the least impactful player in a starting five. That in and of itself tells the story about how good that lineup is going to be. I, I I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll let that be the last word on the Celtics. So the Celtics are scary. And I will say, I don't think it's a crazy statement that you made. And I'd agree with it. Um, the only part I disagree with is that I think probably Jalen Brown is the the worst player of that or, or the least impactful player of that that starting lineup. But if we're talking if it's debatable between, you know, Derek White and the highest paid player in the NBA being your worst players, then yikes it's gonna they're gonna be a they're gonna be tough we'll have to talk about this some other time but like it's a that's a really interesting conversation to me not just white versus brown but also like just which is more replaceable because you know like maybe the impact data doesn't love jalen brown but i do think that it's reasonable to say what he's doing is is harder than what Derek white's doing like being the second option on a great offense you know I would disagree, but I agree. It's probably probably best suited for for another time because that'd be a that feels like a podcast in of itself to to have that conversation. Um, yeah, but yeah, it'll be super interesting uh, the 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 day that we talk about that. <laughs> um, maybe even next on next pod after we see what happens in this game against the Knicks. Game two of the regular season: the Knicks at the Hawks. Um, the Knicks in Atlanta to take on the Hawks. Uh, Jeff, you want to you want to jump in there first and, and, and give your thoughts? Yeah, I think the Hawks um, are actually a, a pretty interesting juxtaposition to the Knicks because they're doing what a lot of Knicks fans wanted the Knicks to do. Like the Knicks had the the Hawks have someone in Jalen Brown or in Jalen Johnson's way. They have someone in uh, Nyeka Kongwu's way, and they were just like, okay, John Collins, you're gone. And no, I'm not saying that John Collins is Julius Randle, no matter what other people think. Like, oh, they both average 20 and 10. And yet, no, no. Julius Randle is a better basketball player than uh, John Collins is, and maybe demonstrably so. Um, But the Hawks are, like, it would have been very easy for the Hawks to say, no, we have Trey Young. We just signed DeJounte Murray. 
we need to keep our marginally better players to be as good as possible right now. And the Hawks are actually taking, risking, taking a step back by giving the keys, quote unquote, the power forward keys to Jalen Johnson to potentially take two or three steps forward down the line. That was always the argument for Obi over Randall. You know, Obi was a higher impact player in 2021, 2022, but I don't think anybody ever really truly thought like at this moment, Obi Toppin is a better basketball player than Julius Randall. I, you know, Julius was going through whatever he was going through. The argument was always, is it worth it to take a step back and see if Obi Toppin from a team impact standpoint has a higher ceiling down the line? Could the Knicks do that? And how would, you know, Oh, they get Jalen Brunson. Is it possible Obi Toppin pairs with Jalen Brunson better? We'll never know. But the Hawks are asking that question. And the earlier turns are phenomenal because Jalen Johnson looks just so good. He just looks like he's going to be a player in this league. Um, I I don't know. I I think some people might be higher on the Hawks this season than I am. I don't I don't know if they're going to win a playoff series. I think that would be the line. Like if I was, you know, an odds maker, I would set it at 0.5 playoff series one. And I think that's pretty reasonable, but I do like the direction they're headed. Um, what do you, what do you, what do you think about just the overall direction of the Hawks? I agree with you. I love the overall direction. Like I, I will say, uh, is it, do you think it is Jalen Johnson that's going to start? Because I, I don't think he's going to start. That, w- that would be my guess. Um, I would guess that Sadiq Bay starts at the four for them. Um, well, even if they go with Bay at the four over Johnson, which is um, – it has merit. I, I actually think DeAndre Hunter – like him and DeAndre it, – it'll be kind of like a, an R.J. Hart situation where they kind of just flip-flop from right which has merit which has merit in and of itself because right i mean deandre hunter is another former lottery pick of theirs that that move kind of unlocks him because you, yeah. you kind of see you, you get to see him in different constructs which is important rather than as a pure small forward it's like oh does he maybe he's a small ball four you know and like so that does have value i'd be surprised if jalen johnson doesn't ultimately like we mm-hmm. know who Sadiq Bay is in this league, don't we? Like, yeah. I, if I if I was uh, Quinn Snyder, I would want uh, Hunter and Jalen Johnson at the three and four, and then I would want Sadiq Bay with uh, uh, off the bench because I, I I think Sadiq Bay his bench scoring brings value to the team, where uh, and he's just kind of a safer bet. Like he's night to night, you yeah. kind of know what you're gonna get, and I would rather see what I have in the ceiling of this team with Jalen Johnson paired with Trey young. And honestly, I, it wouldn't surprise me if they look to trade Clint Capella down the line and just fully unlock the Okongwu Johnson, Hunter, Trey young Murray lineup. I could see that, but I, I don't feel like that's what's going to happen. So I think I might have a different view on the Hawks team than you do. Because I don't think they're going to really go this like full development route and just like develop Jalen Johnson. Like I, to me, I, he doesn't work as well with that starting unit because of the shooting. So I think that Trey does need to be surrounded by shooters. You already have Dejounte, who is like a good shooter, but like probably slightly worse than league average, especially for his position. Um, and you already have Hunter, who's like again like a good shooter, but you know not like a top shooter in the NBA, 
Bay, who is a pretty, a really good like volume shooter, but again, not one of the best percentage guys in the NBA. So to me, it's like, I don't think you can afford to have Jalen Johnson out there with Trey Young uh, because defenses are just going to collapse the paint and it's going to take away his lob threat. It's going to take his floater threat, uh, take away his floater threat. And I don't think they're going to want to take a step back in that way for the sake of development. I think they're going to try to develop these guys, uh, you know, guys like Jalen Johnson. Um, but I'm also excited about a guy like AJ Griffin, who actually does space the floor tremendously well and is literally 20 years old, which is insane. Um, I think AJ Griffin is going to be really good. Uh, he's, not terrible defensively. And I think his offensive ceiling is very, very high. Um, so I think that he's going to play a lot more and I think they're going to try to get more shooting out there between, um, you know, like the guys that I mentioned, uh, AJ Griffin. And I don't think, I think Jalen Johnson is going to have a big role on the team, but I don't think it's going to be as a starter. And I don't think it's going to be, uh, you know, as a a traditional four with Trey young and the rest of the guys. So, I mean, we'll see, but that's kind of where I'm thinking about with the Hawks. I do. I think I'm probably one of the guys that's like the 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 people that you said is higher on on Atlanta than than you because I think that they're going to be really good, um, not really good, but you know better than expectations. I think their over under was like 42 and a half wins. I have them going over that. I just think that Trey Young is going to have a major bounce back year, and it's easy to forget that he's like 25 years old and he's probably still like pre prime. Um, and and last year he was used in like. I think in more of a suboptimal way um, early in the season, trying to have him mesh with DeJounte and play off ball more. And the fact is that Trey Young is who he is. He's an elite uh, heliocentric on ball creator, one of the best in the game. And and I think they're going to put him in that role fully again. And I do think Bay and, and Griffin being like providing the shooting around him is going to be helpful. And I could see what you said as far as like trading Capella, but I do think their center rotation is kind of similar to the Knicks. It's kind of funny, like between uh, Capella and Okongwu. These guys are both nightmares on the boards, like especially on the offensive rebounding end with Trey collapsing the paint and drawing a big. So I do think like this is going to be a really interesting test for the Knicks to, to match up against two centers that are so similar to the Knicks two centers in terms of like what they try to do with them. Um, and I think they're going to surprise a lot of people. And it'll be interesting to see how the Knicks deal with uh, with Murray, who, you know, I think took a sizable step backwards last year, trying to figure out how to play off ball. And, and both him and Trey tried to figure out how to play off ball and both didn't do it well. Um, but he did improve his shooting and he's going to give the Knicks problems because Grimes is going to be occupied with Trey. Like and and, and then who, who are you going to put on Murray? I, I it's it's going to be tough. To, it's tough to say. Are the Knicks going to be fine with? with uh with Brunson on Hunter <laughs> you know I, I I don't know it's it's tough to see where you're gonna hide Brunson there so I, I think it's gonna I think they're gonna give the Knicks trouble I think Capella to me is like Mitch's greatest nemesis <laughs> is how I view them for some reason like he always gives Mitch trouble and we talked about the the kind of centers who give Mitch trouble are typically like the stretch five types everybody else he can deal with look at what he did with the the, the Cavs bigs in, in the playoffs he can just deal with any other guy who's who's not stretching out the court but capella does give him problems uh and and they're really similar capella is a better rim runner um mitch is a, a better offensive rebounder 
So I think despite the star power that we're seeing in the game, you know, from Trey Young and 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 Jalen Brunson, I think the two guys that I'm looking at the most are going to be Capella and Mitch. So that's kind of my 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 uh, view on, on on this coming upcoming matchup. So you have any response to that? Yeah, just uh, the reason Mitch struggles with Capella is because he gets caught in no man's land with Trey Young. You need yeah. like Capella. I don't think Capella would be affected as effective against Mitch if he didn't have such an elite point guard with the skill set that Trey Young does specifically yeah, regarding his, his floater. Like if, if he had a point guard that was more threes plus layups, Mitch could kind of, it would be easier for him to guard both at once because he's asked to do that too much. Um, even with how good Grimes is at screen navigation, it just, um, it just ends up a lot with Trey Young, head of steam. He gets a lot of floaters, and Tibbs doesn't want to give up that floater to Trey Young. So Mitch now has to come out further from the rim, and Capella reaps the rewards of that. Regarding what you said about the overall state of the Hawks, um, just one quick, I wouldn't see uh, giving increasing Jalen Johnson's role as like tanking. I don't think that that's what they'd be doing. I think that it would be kind of a uh, a tweener thing. We're like, okay, maybe they plateau from last season or even take a small step back. But also maybe they're just better right away. Like that was, that's why I compared it to the Obi thing because like, yeah, maybe replacing Obi with Randall would have made them worse and they would have been sort of looking towards the future more. But like, if you look at the 2021, 2022 impact data, like maybe they just would have, gotten better if Obi played more minutes you know like um i guess it's just yeah. like what is what what does jalen johnson do well offensively that would like obviously defensively he's very solid but what does he do well mm-hmm. like offensively that would help create because we know what Obi could offer like we could talk about that but I, i'm not sure what jalen johnson could offer that would like somehow increase their ceiling even like in a multiverse where we look at all the different potential outcomes i'm like i see very few where Jalen Johnson increases their ceiling. Well, he gives them, he gives them a better, he gives them um, an alternative look to the nonstop uh, Trey Young Capella pick and rolls, which are effective. All of a sudden you, you use Jalen Johnson as the screener and you put Capella in the dunker spot and it kind of offers a different look when you do that with Bay or Hunter, they just kind of pop and it, it, Results in Trey Young just getting a switch and going one-on-one a lot. I think Jalen Johnson would offer kind of an in-between role where he's setting a lot of screens that aren't center screens, but he can – I know he wasn't a good three-point shooter last season, and I'm not buying the Jalen Johnson three-point stock, but I do think he offers something as a three-point shooter. Like he's not just going to shoot no threes. And so if he can pop, he can roll – I do think that does something for your offense if you're not like when Capella sets a screen, you know it's a roll. When Sadiq Bay sets a screen, it's almost certainly going to be a pop. I do think having that um, versatility helps the offense and and can help Trey Young. I think that's totally fair um, as far as like the a different look and 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 what you described. I think is totally right. Uh, if Bay or Hunter or any of these guys, they're going to pop and, uh, you know, play the role, man, they're going to pop and probably, and, and, and it'll end up in a switch. And I, I don't think Trey Young's best attribute is taking guys one-on-one. I don't, I, I think that's going to diminish his value if that's what he ends up doing. 
to me, it's like we know what Trey is. Run that one five pick and roll, spam it, like just do it, like all game. Like I, I that's that's I when I think Atlanta is most effective and just have better shooters to space the court with. Like to me, that that's and I, I'm I'm not sure what Quinn is going to want to do. So we'll see. He might. I'm sure he wants to add more variability and to 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 the offense. So I'm sure he's not going to just do what I just said. But um, to me, that's the bread and butter, and I think that that's the money maker. Yeah, I just don't believe in that really. Like I, I mean, we talk about with the Knicks all the time. I don't believe in just no matter how effective it is, just doing one basic thing all the time. I think it yeah, yeah. maximizes opponents' ability to figure it out. And then also there are human beings to consider here. And Dejounte, like I, you mentioned earlier, that you think they're going to revert to more Trey Young. I've actually noticed the opposite trend in preseason. I see them going through Dejounte Murray more, and I see. First of all, if Trey Young wants to improve as a basketball player, he has to become more valuable off the ball. And I know it's preseason, but I've actually seen increased willingness and effort from him to do stuff off the ball that could help. Um, I agree with you. Trey Young is an elite engine, and you want that to be your number one source of offense. Uh, I just think there's a middle ground here, and that. First of all, you can stagger minutes and stagger lineups so that Trey Young's getting enough possessions when he's on the court. But I do think that the best version of Trey Young isn't someone who just 100% of the time he's on the court is running one five pick and roll. Like, I just don't yeah. think that that's optimal for a team ceiling or a player's ceiling. I, hmm, it's tough. Like, I, I kind of agree and disagree with you. Um, yeah, I mean, it's tough. Like, last year, I think that he was was reluctant to do stuff off the ball. Like he just seemed to just go to the corner and just wait there. Um, I haven't watched them a ton in the preseason this year, so it's I, it's interesting that, that you're seeing them um, have Trey Young do more stuff off the ball. So I do think that he can reach, definitely reach like higher heights if he does is willing to do that and take a leaf out of the Steph Curry playbook. Um, you know, last year he wasn't a really a very good catch and shoot three point shooter. The year before he was amazing um so if you can do stuff off the ball and and provide gravity and then you know obviously they stagger Dejounte and, and trey so that they, they can both like run the show for a lot of the game that definitely will increase the hawk ceiling but i just think that like we've seen like that trey young just kind of like be the heliocentric engine and that like we've seen him be like an amazing elite like one of the best offensive players in the nba and one of the and honestly, like even in 2022 or in uh, 2020, one of the best offensive players in the last several years in terms of like his, his ability to impact the, the offense. So I do think yeah, like we, we a, saw it, we saw healing. it, we, we saw it. And then the conversation was, OK, we need to get him help and take a pay, take, take a lesson from Luka Doncic. We're going to be saying Luka needs help for the rest of his career if he never changes the way he plays. Yeah, that's totally that's, true. And yeah. he, he is every single player on his team is going to be a role player and not good enough unless he evolves as a player. And we now have multiple players becoming legit stars after leaving Luca who weren't good enough as teammates who, who, who were like, eh, like we need a true star. And like, sure, Kyrie Irving is going to find a way to get his hands on the ball, but they're just going to play your turn, my turn. And we're going to like, unless Luca actually commits to i don't know becoming a screener and setting screens for like 
I don't know. W- watch the possessions that Luca doesn't have the ball in his hands. They're ridiculous. Like it's just he just stands there. He refuses to shoot off the catch. I've never seen somebody so consistently have an open three off the catch and need to like <laughs> dribble left and step back. Like it's insane <laughs> to watch. Um, yeah. And and we're gonna spend his entire career saying, oh, like we need to get him more help. He needs more help. He needs more help. Unless he figures out that oh. This didn't work for LeBron James. I don't think it's going like it's not going to work for me. <laughs> LeBron yeah. went to Miami and learned how to play team basketball. That was like the most important thing he learned how to do was how to impact the game without the ball in his hands next to Dwayne Wade. And if he can do that, Luka Doncic and Trey Young can do that or not not can do that, but need to do that too. Yeah, I I totally hear what you're saying. I guess like my view is that my view is more like I don't think Trey Young can do more. Like I don't think he can be better than he has been. Like for instance, do you think Trey can have better offensive seasons as far as like impact than he has had already in his career? Like if he were to do more stuff off the ball, because then you're talking about like this is like one of the offensive players of our generation, like all time kind of thing. But individual impact and maximizing your team ceiling are sometimes different. And like, so what I'll say by that is if you look at impact metrics and you look at 2009 LeBron, and then you look at 2013 LeBron, 2009 LeBron is like one of the greatest seasons we've ever seen. And you would say, can LeBron have a higher individual impact? Maybe not, but a lot of that was what team circumstance and his role asked him to do. He was a better basketball player in 2013 than 2009. And if he went back in 2000, if his 2013 self traveled back to 2009 and played that season again, his impact metrics would probably look worse because he would have recognized that the best way for his team to be the best was for other guys to be more elevated. What LeBron did in 2009 is one of the most unbelievable things we've ever seen because his team was betting favorites to win the championship with him basically just playing one on five. Like (laughs) that's what he, like we've never seen that before. We'll never see it again. The league is more evolved. There's more good players. You can't win that way. That's just not how you, you can't win a championship that way. So no, maybe the impact metrics will never like Trey young as much as the, they liked him two seasons ago, but I believe Trey young would be a better basketball player and the Hawks would have a higher ceiling if he took a step back almost. Yeah, this is an interesting conversation for sure. And we'll we'll be having plenty more of them <laughs> throughout the season, I'm sure, as we talk about other teams, but definitely interesting perspective. Um, so I yeah, I just want to switch over to our last game that we're gonna preview, game three of the regular season. It's gonna be the Knicks at the Pelicans. Uh Knicks going down to New Orleans to battle the Pelicans. Um, I mean, I, I can start on this one. To me, I do Maybe I maybe I'm just suffering from optimism bias. I don't know what's going on, but I do think New Orleans is like a little better than people give them credit for. Um, I think they're a tough defensive team. Obviously, if Zion is genuinely healthy, they will be a problem. I I I, I don't. I, you cannot stop Zion from getting to the rim. Um, you just I, I don't think anybody's ever proven the, that they can do that. Um, and he's not only explosive, but he's subtly like kind of shifty. Like he has like he has like a, a couple gears he can go to and. At his size and power, it's just completely insane. Um, if you add Zion to a hard-nosed like defensive team that rebounds well and and tries not to make mistakes, basically, it's it's they're going to be a tough night for anybody. So, um, but as far as previewing the Knicks game, to me, 
the the key to me is is Valanciunas. So first of all, Valanciunas can space the floor. Like not only is he a legit offensive issue like on the block, uh, but he has shot around or better than league average on I mean on low volume, um, but threes for his entire career. And then his real strength, obviously, which we saw on full display during the the, the FIBA World Cup this summer. He's probably the best rebounder in the game, um, you know, besides a guy like, you know, a specialist like Andre Drummond who doesn't play like real minutes. But I, as far as like, you know, his percentages, Valanciunas's like rebounding percentages, they would suggest he's the best rebounder in the game. I, I don't think that's all that it comes down to. Like it's about boxing out and and making sure that your team gets rebounds that they wouldn't have otherwise where you're not on the court. But we saw in in the World Cup, this guy is going to get rebounds. Like some somewhere or somehow, he's going to box out. He's going to get rebounds. I think this is another huge test for Mitch in the Knicks to work on the you know the Knicks work on the offensive boards. Uh, Valanciunas does not allow offensive re- uh, offensive rebounds. He does not allow offensive rebounds. Like he just uh, you know the Pelicans have been a top defensive rebounding team since he's been there, and. Here, this is just a game where I think the Knicks are going to have to be efficient on offense instead of just relying on, you know, extra extra chances on the offensive end. So um, that's one thought. And then just my other thought is that I think the Knicks can es- exploit CJ McCollum. Um, I think they're going to try to hide him on Grimes. And we are going to need Grimes to be in attack mode and, and make them pay, not only by hitting shots, but to show us what he can do attacking closeouts. Because people always talk about the shooting, but Grimes can attack closeouts. He's an amazing finisher. Like this dude really shot. I'm looking at it right now. He shot 70% from the rim last year. And, you know, that's the 97th percentile for guards. Like obviously it's on low volume. It's not like he's getting like lobs and transition buckets. I mean, I mean, he was getting some 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 transition buckets, but not like all of it. Um, he can genuinely finish at the rim. Like we've seen him finish contested shots at the rim and he's reliable at finishing at the rim. Of course, he's not going to like dunk over you or, or anything like that, but he's reliable at finishing at the rim. So I'm looking for him to attack closeouts um, and kick out or make the interior pass that he loves. He loves doing, he loves uh, making those interior passes when he collapses and, and, or to just finish at the rim. So to me, it's like the player to look out for against the Pelicans on the offensive end is Grimes. And, uh, on the defensive end is, is, is really to worry about, um, about to see how Mitch holds up as far as like rebounding. The ad new Orleans game is going to just be special to me for, I don't know, for a long time, because this is just a quick anecdote. I, nobody got to play the World Series of Poker in 2020 because of COVID. And then in 2021, it was postponed until the winter. So it was, it usually takes place in Las Vegas during the summer. And it took place during November um, in 2021, which is really weird. And I was so excited to be back. Like I hadn't played poker in over two years. I don't really play full time anymore. So the world series is pretty much the only chance I get to play poker, see old friends, you know, reconnect with people. And I sat down at the table and had like literally like pregame jitters. Like I was just like, Oh man, we're back in the arena, yada, yada. And then RJ Barrett had the best game of his career. And I just sat there and watched on my phone uh, at new Orleans. It was the same day that I played my first event. And I like literally sat down at the table and I was like talking to everybody. And then for two hours, I was just consumed by this Knicks Pelicans random regular season game in 2021, 2022. And for people who don't remember, 
RJ didn't just put up good numbers. He was like hitting step back threes. He was walking into threes off of screens. It was like we were watching a leap right there. And it it felt like, holy shit, is this going to happen all season? Like, is this what? Because it was still early in the season. And it was like, oh, my God, like this is finally happening, you know. And I'll just always remember that feeling. Um, nobody cared. I mean, uh, that that's that's as you know anecdotal as I'll get. This matchup specifically, you hit the nail on the head on a lot of things. I do want to push back a little bit again about the Valanciunas part. Um, I agree that he is like, from a body standpoint, like just someone who's huge and like maybe maybe kind of offers something that could bother Mitch. He was bad last season like really bad <laughs> um if you just what do you mean overall or you mean against the knicks no just like his impact overall last season was not good in yeah. any sense yeah yeah, um, yeah. i mean we which was that. an outlier it was an outlier year for him but yeah okay right. yeah yeah um he's also older so he could just be you know getting worse i guess look i'm open to the idea that jonas is just massive and that's gonna that's gonna block mitch's path to offensive rebounds and that's gonna hurt the knicks offense i think that's sound analysis i also just wouldn't go into this game being like if we can't stop jonas valanciunas from getting us off the boards like if we can't beat jonas valanciunas i worry about other things with the, regards to the knicks i guess is what i'm trying to say <laughs> um i just don't know what the pelicans are doing like mm-hmm. i look at this roster and i look at this team um and everyone always likes to joke about how the Knicks are in purgatory which is the weirdest thing ever because if you just if you just put the facts of the Knicks roster and nothing else like if you just put the thunder on the jerseys everyone would just be like oh my god Sam Presti's a genius second round with the youngest playoff roster oh my god like this all these draft picks they have, they have all their draft picks like it would just be but it's the Knicks, so people are like, "Oh yeah, they're in purgatory. They can't win a championship this year." It's such a, it's such Listen, that's so that's so true. Like what you just said is so true. Like if it was if Sam Presti was the GM and it was like in a small market, mm-hmm. it would be like they're they're crushing it. Like look at their they're already a fifty plus win team, and they have all their picks. It's ridiculous, and they have young players that are still developing. They haven't even met their ceiling yet. They could go any which way and and reach an unbelievable height. But because it's the Knicks, it's like. What are they doing? They're in purgatory. It's that's yeah. such a great point. It's silly. Gotta gotta trade for Carl Anthony Towns. Five five first. Emmanuel quickly <laughs> and RJ Barrett. Gotta gotta do that because we're in purgatory. What the <laughs> fuck, man? God. Uh, <laughs> um, oh, silly. But I really I really don't know what the Pelicans are doing. And this just highlights like how stupid it is because everybody talks about how great David Griffin is. But like Leon. Oh, are we sure Leon's the guy? He's no David Griffin. Um. You just there's no rhyme or reason to their roster. I've never really been super high on Brandon Ingram. I guess I'm not like a big bag guy, you know. Like hey, people, people get people love to uh, fawn over like, oh, look at what he can do from 18 feet. But like the overall impact has never really been there. I don't know how much of that is his fault in on the Pelicans specifically because they haven't dabbled too much in him being a small ball four. Like I could actually see in the right scenario him having a 2012, 2013 Mello season. Um, Cause he's actually a better passer than Mello was uh, in that season. And he's an incredibly skilled offensive player. So if you put, you know, everybody loves to talk about Dyson Daniels and 
it's just another area where people, God, I could rant about how biased people are against the Knicks. So if Dyson Daniels was on the Knicks, do you know how big a joke the idea that he's this great young player would be? Nobody would talk about it. <laughs> um, but him and Trey Murphy, like if you put him, Trey Murphy, and um, I guess they don't really have much. I mean, they have McCollum. I don't love the McCollum fit. You know, that's kind of what I'm talking about. But I guess like if they ran a lineup of like McCollum, Trey Murphy, Daniels, Ingram and a rim protecting center, I think that Ingram could be unlocked in a way that I don't think he's been allowed to be in New Orleans. I want to say also about Ingram is like, I know we're we're obviously in 2023 and and we got you know Josh Hart's going to be playing the four and RJ Barrett's going to be playing the four, and I love it. I'm obviously all about it. Brandon Ingram is like 190 pounds. He's like six nine, 190 pounds. Like if if it's if anybody's gonna have an issue as far as like their size and playing the four, it's probably gonna be him. Um, so I, I I don't know. Maybe that's why they haven't explored it. But I think it's worth a shot. I, I agree with you. But um, yeah, I, I, that that would be a concern to be like six nine, six ten, 190 pounds. It's a little bit, a little bit too light there. I think maybe potentially we'll see. Um, yeah, I don't know. I uh, I guess my ideal team setting is always going to be a four plus one um, or a five plus zero in the sense of having Porzingis or like an actual no, Miles you. turn. Miles I Turner. agree with you. Yeah, yeah. Um, We're fully in agreement on that. I, I, I want, I, just to be clear for, the, for, for listeners, I want one through 12 to be shooters. <laughs> like I don't want, yeah. no, I want zero non-shooters is what I want. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I just think the way – so to me, if you say I think Brandon Ingram is too small to be a power forward, you're going to look for someone bigger at power forward. It's really hard to find someone bigger than Brandon Ingram who can also shoot and space the floor. Those players are really rare. Like if you no. can get like – it's just the weight I'm talking about. So like at 190 is like extremely light. You know what I mean? Like CJ McCollum is 190. Like even yeah. RJ is heavier. Hart is heavier. I think all those guys can hold up like boxing. I'm just talking about like boxing out guys. It's like not really about being tall or anything like that. Like I, I think. Yeah. So you, so you need like PJ Tucker. Yeah. Or, like, or yeah. A guy like that, I guess. I don't, I don't, I don't think you need a PJ Tucker, but like a, a guy I, like that. But my point is, is that the reason that PJ Tucker bounced from championship team to championship team for like five years, like every single team was like, oh, this is the missing piece is because there's literally like one PJ Tucker. <laughs> like it's really, it's really yeah, hard fair. to find that's fair. a power forward who can, who doesn't need the ball in his hands, who can space and is also physical enough to get in and defend and defensive rebound. PJ Tucker is like it, you know, like a yeah, Josh that's Hart. Fair. Like, that's fair. Um, and so for me, I, I would – first of all, I think Brandon Ingram's lankiness will help him on the defensive glass at power forward. Um, he's just so tall and got those huge arms. Um, yeah. But then, like, if if you did what the Knicks did in 2013 and had Tyson Chandler at center, like, that's an ideal four plus one next to Brandon Ingram. You know, you have someone who can just vacuum rebounds, box people out. Um, or you could go the other way. And you could just play Zion at center and say, fuck defense. Like, <laughs> you know, like, and you could just go all in on <laughs> crazy offense. Um, that's interesting to me. I don't, I don't think they'd ever do that. I would love to see it <laughs> because It'd it's be not awesome my team. So fuck it. Like, we'll yeah. see how it goes. <laughs> no, I mean, you're right. We'll never see it. The coaches are just too like, 
oh my god can you imagine like tibbs trying to coach that team that'd be the funniest thing ever like him just losing his mind every single defensive possession (laughs) um but and this is where the knicks deserve credit like we we open the podcast with this we can kind of end it with this the knicks are trying to go small and they're not just saying okay screw it we're going to take the positives of going small no they've said okay tibbs you value the defensive glass how can we find a middle ground here? Oh, I've got it. Let's find good rebounding guards. Oh, so we're going to force you to play this small lineup with Josh Hart and RJ Barrett at the three and the four with Isaiah Hartenstein. But guess what? We're going to give you Emmanuel Quickly and Dante DiVincenzo at the one and the two, two of the best rebounding guards in basketball. Yeah, Josh Hart is only 6'4". He's undersized for a power forward. But he's a great defender and he's a great rebounder for his size. All of a sudden, this small lineup where Tibbs in a vacuum might be like, Oh God, like I'm just worried about getting slaughtered on the defensive glass. They've given this lineup the best possible chance of succeeding at the defensive glass. So there are ways if you say, okay, we want Brandon Ingram to play power forward, but we're a little worried about the defensive glass. There are ways to to mitigate that. Um, And I'm just going to bring it back to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I always think big picture for people who are listening the first time. This is just how my brain works. I don't like, I'm a film guy. I'm an X's and O's guy. I have that in me, but I just always zoom out. That's just, I'm going to need, I'm going to need XJ to reel me in sometimes, you know, because I'm always thinking long-term the matchup specifically. I just think the Knicks, I I know they got killed at MSG by the Pelicans. Um, I forget if it was last season or two seasons ago. There was one, very frustrating Pelicans home game. I just think they're kind of a good matchup. And I, I really like the way the Knicks match up on both ends versus them. I agree with you that Jonas's size could be an issue for Mitch on the offensive glass, but I don't really see, uh, I think the Knicks have good answers to all the, the Pelicans questions, I guess is what I'm trying to say with Zion as the huge outlier to that, because That's we just haven't saying. seen it. Yeah. yeah we, we, we just haven't seen it. So, um, Although couldn't couldn't you just see uh, Julius Randle kind of like taking that matchup personally? Like you know Zion wants to be a Nick, and like I could just see Julius Randle being like, "Not nah, screw this! Like I'm the Nick, I'm the power forward of the Knicks, and I'm gonna crush this guy and prove it." That's a next factor. I, I totally agree with that. I, I mean, we've seen it before. <laughs> when Julius gets up for a matchup, we see Super Saiyan Julius. It's 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 definitely uh, it bodes well for the Knicks. So hopefully we see him turn up for Zion. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I I I think that really rounds us out. Uh, I, I do of- have I do have one last question for you, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's up? So we don't need to do like official predictions, but I'm curious what you like. What is your for this this upcoming slate, these three games? What is yeah. you? What do you think? Like, what do you think they're gonna do? And then what is like? Okay, I would sign for this. And what would be like? Oh God, like I don't want to have to talk about this next week. Like, what are what are the <laughs> what are the range? What are the ranges for you? So I, that's a great question. I mean, we should always probably round out our conversation of the games with this kind of talk just to, to, to sum it all up. Honestly, I think there's a wide, there's a pretty broad range. I'm not going to lie. Like I am more concerned about the Hawks and the Pelicans, I think, than probably you are. Um, and, and you can say next, but like, I think if they let go of the rope and, and let go of their focus, they could easily end up 0-3 after those first three games. Like I... I do think the Pel- again, it depends on Zion. Like, what Zion are we getting? If we get Zion last year, that was like an MVP candidate for you know the time that he was playing. I mean, a fringe MVP candidate, but still an MVP candidate nonetheless. Like, <laughs> it's going to be tough. It's not going to be easy. Um, I'm expecting two and one. I'm expecting them to beat the Hawks and the Pelicans. Uh, I'm expecting them to lose against Boston. 
but uh, I could see zero and three. I could see one and two. So that's kind of where I'm at. Um, so I'm gonna say that I would, if I had to bet on the most likely record, I would bet on one and two. But it's so close that I'm not gonna say that like if they go two and one, I'll be over the moon thrilled. You know, like it. A lot of it depends on how the games are played, which obviously matters you know like if they go one and two and get slaughtered twice like and eke out a close you know like it, of course there are different outcomes i just think that winning two straight road games against even fringe playoff teams is, that's a hard thing to do um and that would be an impressive thing to do if the knicks go two and one and like fight against the celtics and then rebound from losing the home opener to beating the hawks in their home opener and then beating the Pelicans with Zion in New Orleans, I, I got to assume I'd be pretty happy. Um, whereas if they just go one and two and it's like they lose to the Celtics and then split road games against two pretty good teams, there's no way either one of us is going to be like, well, season's over, you know, <laughs> like, so nah, not at one and two with this kind of, but I, so, okay. What's your, um? do you have an official, like your projection as far as like the record for <clears throat> the Knicks record for the season. Cause you said between like 55 and 60 get like, is there a, and, and not that it really matters. Like it's less about us being right about the specific record and more about like the factors that are causing us to make those pred predictions. But I'm just curious, like what, what do you think the Knicks are going to end up as? Yeah, I think they're going to go 52 and 30. So the, so the, ex my exact one, that's what is i that said, what you said yeah oh shit that's boring <laughs> i like i obviously was listening i just uh, i thought yeah, you were gonna say gonna 56 go and, okay 52 so no, we're, we're no. at the same think, exact think, yeah I, yeah i thought you said 50 plus oh man i did I, I mean i said 52 and 30 but i said like i i said the range that i'm expecting mm -hmm. is like between 49 and 52 games but i said 52 and 30 yeah, my bad. We, you know, we talk about so many things. I, I can't yeah, say no, I, you're, mem I memory banked your fine. projection. Yeah, you're fine. In yeah. fact, I, you could probably argue that, like, that's why the number was in my head. You know, it probably was just sitting around, like, you know, I heard 52 earlier. But, yeah, I think 52 and 30 is it. Uh, yeah. Honestly, okay. if, honestly, folks, if that doesn't sum up, like, how we just think alike <laughs> a lot, then I don't know. I don't know what will. Totally. Yeah. Okay. It makes sense then. I, I was just curious because I, I thought if you had them, like, winning, like, 57 games or something like that i'm like they have to go two and one on this stretch like almost you know what i mean um yeah i don't i don't agree with that like they're gonna win that what's that win percentage like 50 if they win 57 games that's like a almost a 70 percent win percentage like then you're talking about we're starting the season one and two and then you have to do even better than that um yeah they kind of have to they would just have that to would go be 56. incredible yeah but they just have to go 56 and 23 the other way that's not like Losing road games isn't that big a deal. Like it is a big deal, but like I just I disagree. Fair enough. I disagree. That's a seventy-one percent win percentage the re the rest of the season. That's like uh, an all-time great team, almost not an all-time great team, but you know, like a really elite team in the in the NBA. Yeah, but I you just, don't have them um, winning that much, so it's fine. <laughs> yeah, I just screw it, man. I I mean, I could. Yeah, I, I've said earlier that I do think their high-end ceiling is between 55 and 60. So, like, I I also – look, we're going to talk more about it next week. These first 10 games just scare me, man. Like – It's rough. It's rough. Yeah. They have, they have 10 games. I'll read them off here. They're versus Boston. 
at Atlanta, at New Orleans, home and home versus Cleveland, at Milwaukee, and then a three-game home stand against the Clippers, Spurs, Hornets. Nice little reprieve against the Spurs and Hornets, but like even in today's NBA, like oh great, this soft game against Wemby, who's like it's gonna yeah. be a show. Um, yeah, and then they and then they cap it off at Boston again. So that's two games versus Sheesh. Boston, two games versus Boston, two games versus Cleveland, uh, two road games against playoff teams in Atlanta and New Orleans, and then a game at Milwaukee and a game versus the Clippers at home. Like eight of ten games are. Yeah. No. So that, that's what yeah, I mean. If they're if they're gonna win like like fifty five plus games, like they what are they, how are they making it through that gauntlet early in the season? Like they can't come they out just, of that like even. No, they can. If they go five and five in that stretch, I'd feel fine about fifty five plus wins. Really? Yeah. That's so interesting. That's like that's like as tough as it gets. Yeah, but then you have to win all the games that you're supposed to win. You have to win. You know what I mean? Like they're gonna lose games yeah. that they're supposed to win. <laughs> they're not gonna win that's every game that they're the favorite in. Yeah, that's true. So I think you have to win games you're not supposed to win. Like that's the only way to 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 reach that kind of record. I'm just saying I would sign not not even related to my you know 55 to 60 win. Yeah. I would sign right now for five and five to open the season. Um, I would as well. I would as well. Yeah, I I would I would sign up for that. Um. All right. Well. This has been a, a great first episode. Yeah, I mean, I, I I know I can speak for Jeff when I say we're super excited to have launched, finally launched the Hot Hand Theory podcast and this Hot Hand Theory venture. Um, super grateful for anyone who is listening or watching right now. You know, whether it's like a single person who's made it this far <laughs> into the pod, thank you so much, whoever you are. Um, you know, there's so much great basketball content out there and we're just hoping to do, uh, you know, our best to contribute with our more kind of like analytical based perspective and, and, and hopefully people enjoy that. So, you know, please like the video on YouTube, rate If you're listening on the podcast, please subscribe anywhere you're listening. Um, you know, this season, we're going to not only do weekly podcasts that will drop every Tuesday, but we're also going to be interviewing amazing guests once a month. That's a that's a thing that we're going to be doing. Like truly amazing guests that we have no business getting, being that we're like a brand new podcast. Um, so uh, yeah, and if you're on YouTube, please leave a comment below with your thoughts. I love being in the comments. Um, I will be I will respond and engage with every single comment that comes in. There won't be one comment that I don't like address or engage in some way. So please do that. And uh, yeah, anything you want to say, Jeff, to to kind of sign us off. I just echo your gratitude, um, or gratitude. Um, I mean, I, who cares about how many people follow you on Twitter slash X or whatever it's called, but you know, me and XJ had goals and we had, you know, things we talked about regarding like, Oh, what can we do? And one of the things we talked about was like, oh, could we get, you know, 500, three to 500 followers by the end of the season? Because basically just starting something from scratch, you know, um, and 340 of you like already follow us on Twitter before an episode drop. That's ridiculous. That's amazing. And to us, it's kind of reinforcement that y'all like the content we put out and you vibe with the way we approach the game and you're just going to get a lot more of that in this kind of form. We're kind of just free to talk however we want, however much we want. And we love that. And we're going to do the best we can to 
you know, talk about stuff with reson that resonates with y'all. Um, yes, it's going to be Knicks focused, but as you heard today, like we love the NBA, we're going to be talking about all sorts of teams, and we're just excited to do that. Yes, sir. Couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, this has been a hot hand theory. Uh, we will see you next week. <laughs>